0: I think it's good to remind ourselves that this letter was written to a local church. And this local church lived in the middle of the Roman Empire. It's very similar in many ways to our own modern world. And just like any church in any time and place, there were victories and there were defeats. There were clear evidences of God's presence and work among this church, as Paul affirms again and again. And there were also glaring inconsistencies, just ways in which their former lifestyle, their pagan practices had so just taken deep root in their lives and in their community. We know that it had been reported to Paul by the household of Chloe that there were all sorts of issues going on in this local church. There were social issues, there were sexual issues, there were spiritual issues going on and the members were divided against one another and they were divided against Paul. And I've said this again and again, though Paul addresses each of these issues in turn, they're just symptoms of the deeper issue and that is that the Corinthians had failed to understand the real life implications of Jesus Christ and him crucified and risen again. And you know what? Actually, as I was studying through 1 Corinthians 15 this week, I realized each week I have taught and got up here, I talk about you know, the real-life implications of Jesus Christ and him crucified, period. But that's only half the story. The full story is Jesus Christ crucified and risen again. And there are huge implications when we only have half of the story, or when we only emphasize half of the story. Now, each study that I've taught through this series, I've also read this quote from Leslie Newbegin, where he says, the choice of the church in every age will always be, will our identity be shaped by scripture or by culture, by the biblical story or the cultural story? And we've been acknowledging in each of our studies that this community of believers were not reflecting the values, the practices, and culture of the kingdom of God and its King Jesus, but were a reflection of values, mores, and habits of the culture of the day. And here in the middle of chapter 15, Paul specifically notes that the Corinthians are under an outside influence when he says, "Do not be misled." Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning for there are some who are ignorant of God and I say this to your shame. So the Corinthians were in fact being influenced by the culture around them, maybe even some teachers within their midst and they were again reflecting the culture around them and not God's kingdom. It's honestly a bit surprising to me that Paul did not start the letter with this issue of denying the resurrection or even referencing it before now. Like, I'm a very sarcastic person just by nature, uh, maybe a little bit by nurture. Uh, but, you know, if I was writing this pastoral letter, I would just be kind of sending these like passive aggressive little remarks at every end of each section, you know, like, well, this is why. And, you know, if you only. Since you deny the resurrection, I would just be jabbing it in as often as I could, but Paul really doesn't do that so much. But if you look back in the letter, you can see how this denial of resurrection really has affected so much of their practice and lifestyle, leading to sin, leading to unrighteousness and injustice. Everything from their pride and exaltation of themselves over others. They have a perverted, over-realized eschatology. They think they're ruling and reigning, but they're not ruling and reigning in the posture of the crucified king. To the misuse of the body. Remember, he says, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord will raise up the body. What you do with your body matters, and it matters eternally, Paul says going on to the greed and self-seeking and self-preservation, thinking only of themselves and their comforts, claiming their rights above the conscience of others and so on. They are not living as a reflection of what is to come. They're getting while the getting's good. They're claiming rights for themselves rather than looking forward to the hope that is to be brought with them to them at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, the truth is, is that what we believe affects our practice and lifestyle greatly. And we'll come back to this in the end of our study this morning. But first, I wanna begin by talking about the consequences of denying the resurrection. And So after rehearsing again the gospel story and account that Paul preached to the Corinthians, the message he says that they received and believed and by which they were being saved, Paul now moves into challenging them on this issue of denying the resurrection. In in sections 12 through 19 and 29 through 34, we're going to take all of these together. Paul shows the illogical thinking behind the Corinthians' claim. And I really appreciated the way that Paul is just willing to go all the way with the Corinthians. It's, It's like he's saying this, all right, fine. You really think this is true? You really believe this? then let's go there. Let's play out the scenario. And so what Paul does is he argues with this rhetorical, if this, then that argument through this whole chapter. So here we go. If there is no resurrection, Paul says, the gospel message that he laid out and they believed is completely irrelevant and empty if Christ is not raised. Not only that, but Paul's whole life his whole ministry of bearing witness to the gospel, everything that he suffered for the gospel, his facing of constant danger. He references dying daily and fighting with beasts at Ephesus. These are references just to some of Paul's sufferings. We know that he mentions more in 2 Corinthians. But all of this makes Paul at best self-deceived and at worst a total lunatic, just a madman with rantings and ravings about some Jesus who actually isn't risen from the dead. On top of that, Paul says, the dearly departed of the Corinthian community are just gone forever. That's the end. No point in mourning, no point in caring, no point in being baptized, whether in order to see them again or in order to make up for that individual's lack of baptism, really depending on what the interpretation of this passage actually is. See, Paul's whole point in this is to say, Corinthians, your lives are a double standard. You're a living contradiction if you do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus. And no part of the faith makes sense without the resurrection of Christ from the dead. So Paul takes it so far to say, if you really, truly believe that there is no resurrection, be consistent. If Christ is not risen, Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. What is Paul saying? He's basically saying if there is no resurrection, then YOLO. You only live once. You better get while the getting is good. You better live this life to the fullest and give yourself completely to hedonistic pursuits if there's no resurrection. It seems that the Corinthians made the mistake of thinking there were certain pieces of the story of God that had been passed on to them that they could simply do without, specifically the resurrection. And if you know a bit about Greco-Roman thought, you can actually understand why. See, in that culture, in that day, resurrection was seen as completely ridiculous because of their view of the body, and absolutely unwanted in their culture. The Greeks believed in what's called the eternality of the soul. Your soul is the real you. And your body doesn't actually express who you are. We're seeing the return of this Gnostic thought even today. There are people in our culture now who say, my body actually doesn't tell me anything about who I am. It's not a true representative of me. I'm actually a soul trapped inside this body. And so they manipulate their bodies. They try to change their bodies in order that their body would reflect what they feel or who they believe themselves to be deep inside. Rejecting the body because it's evil, because it's broken, because it's flawed, The Greeks believed the body was a prison for the soul, and only on death would they be released from these fallen, broken bodies, this fallen, broken world, and they would be released as an eternal soul into the eternal cosmos. But here's where the biblical worldview contradicts this. See, in the biblical worldview, the creation is not evil. The creation is good good, intrinsically good. Remember in the creation story, good, God says. Good, God says. Good, God says. And again and again, that on the last day, the sixth day, when he looks at male and female, what does he say? It is very good. The body is, in fact, very good, made by the one true God who is himself, goodness. Though the creation at this moment is still under the subjection of death and decay through sin because of Adam and Eve's rebellion to God, the body is good, made by God, made for God, made to reflect God's glory, goodness, and righteousness, See, in the biblical story, the body is not something to be done away with, to be rejected, even now in this life, but to be redeemed, to be resurrected and born anew along with the rest of the creation. You see, the doctrine of the resurrection is a cornerstone or pillar of the Christian faith, if you take it away, not only do you lose the resolve and the completion of the story of God, which we'll talk about in a minute, you actually have a crumbling faith. I think some people imagine that certain Christian doctrines are almost like a game of Jenga. How many of you guys are familiar with Jenga? You played this game, right? My kids love this game just because of the, you know, excitement, anticipation, your anxiety rises. And when I pull out that piece that brings everything down, my daughter cheers every time, right? That it happened to me and not her. But Jenga, you can pull pieces out, even foundational pieces out. And then it's like, oh, you know, there it is. It's kind of wobbling a little bit, but the structure still stands. Some people imagine that Christian doctrine is like that. Pull all the pieces out and it still stands. Look, no problem. But in fact, these key doctrines are more like a house of cards. You pull one out and the whole thing comes crashing to the ground. This is because the Bible is a story, it's a complete story about God's rescue and redemption. Paul will go on to show them that the resurrection of Jesus is both Absolutely essential to this story, to the resurrection of humanity and the destruction of death itself, which keeps us from the life that is in God. See, Jesus' resurrection is the vindication of God's faithfulness to the creation, to the world he so dearly loves. This is proof that God is committed to us, that he will not leave us, that he will not scrap the whole project. the middle. Paul's big idea, I think, is that the biblical redemptive story is one whole package from creation to new creation, from the tree of life in the garden to the tree of life in the new Jerusalem. If you mess with that, you lose everything. If this, then that, Paul argues. Now, I personally believe that the church in the Western Hemisphere by and large has failed to tell the biblical narrative in a correct and a compelling way. We have done a disservice to the doctrine of the resurrection in that we, just like the world, try to preserve and distort and manipulate our bodies in a way that does not honor the physical body that has been given by God as a good gift to be received, and we have failed to paint a proper biblical picture of God's future world so that people no longer even want it. We actually believe and practice similarly to the Greeks. At least this is often how we talk. We talk of the eternality of the soul, disembodied spirits living in the clouds or heaven, plucking on harps, Singing holy, holy, holy for all eternity. How boring. It's no wonder that some would rather stay in this world if they've been dealt a good hand or fly off to a disembodied existence in the skies if they haven't. But as always, God has something better. God has resurrection and new creation in store for his people and for the creation. Now, as I was studying this, I I was just thinking through this, and I'm just trying to speak honestly. I am often hard-pressed to find a Christian who believes in a resurrected body, an actual physical new creation on earth, or who even wants it. And I believe that this is because we've sold ourselves short on what this new world is. The new world is God's kingdom come to earth. See, in the biblical story, the kingdom of God meant a guaranteed new heaven and new earth, or renewed heaven, renewed earth, a healed material creation, a physical creation, not a disembodied, not a specter cosmos, or a specter human. It meant absolute wholeness and well being physically, spiritually, socially, and economically. If you've read C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, he imagines human beings leaving what they think is earth, but is actually hell, and they take this ride to the heavenly plane. And as the human beings come off the bus there for their little tour of the heavenly plane, the whole atmosphere is so bright, it's like hurting their eyes. As they step down into the grass, the grass is so real, so physical, so material that it's almost sharp. It hurts their earthly bodies to even touch it because it's so much more real, more physical than they are. See, I think Lewis understands what the world to come is. It is a more physical world. It's a world that's not emptied, but filled up with glory, we're told. We're heading for that biblical vision where the earth is filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. The creation is a vessel not waiting to be emptied of life, but to be filled with God's life, his glory and his goodness. That is what is to come for God's people in the new creation. You see, the kingdom of God was bound up with the Old Testament concept of shalom. And shalom is not just the absence of war, it is the positive presence of peace and glory from God that permeates every part of the creation. The prophets foretold that the kingdom of God was fully established when all that is broken and wrong with the world is mended and made right. And so it was bound up with ideas like poverty, oppression, misery, and sin, and all of those various forms being brought to an end. Remember, the biblical vision is of the mountains being brought down and the valleys being lifted up. There is this restoration. There is everything being put in its right place, being filled up and brought down, a leveling It was envisioned that it would be a kingdom, a world of absolute flourishing prosperity and blessing. This is the world that our good and faithful God has in store for those who belong to him. And yet time and time again, I find that we, we sell ourselves short on this. But in the resurrection lies the hope of the whole world. This is what every human being is longing for, to be reunited with the creation, for everything to be put in its right place, to be filled up with the glory of God. Do you ever feel like Christian preaching on the end of all things kind of sounds like a big escape plan? I do. I heard things like this as a child, and I still continue to hear them. The whole world is going to burn, and everything in it, and we'll be caught away to heaven forever, or something along those lines. But this is biblically and theologically flawed, especially because it comes against the faithfulness of God, which is one of his main attributes. It gives the impression that the God who created this world, the God who sustains this world, the God who gave his life, blood to redeem it, will finally just scrap the whole thing in the end. This is neither biblical or true. God will recreate, restore, renew all things. Well, some might say, well, what do you mean? Peter says, you know, all these things will be burned up. Yes, this is purifying language, not destruction language. It will be renewed. It will be purified as though by fire. See, the resurrection, in a sense, is God's message to the world specifically the the resurrection of Jesus, the message to the world that he is totally committed to his creation from Eden to the new heaven and the new earth. Therefore, the resurrection is the hope of the whole world, the thing that all of creation groans and waits eagerly for, the restoration of the sons of God, the shalom of God filling the earth. Many of us don't even realize it, but this is what we're longing for, This is what we're searching for, to be reunited in the order, the right order of all things, and to be filled up with the glory of God. Now, Paul goes on as he's argued the implications of what happens if Christ is not crucified and risen again. Now he wants to bring the Corinthians in the opposite direction. Let's talk about the implications of Christ's resurrection. So he's argued this, he's gonna use the same rhetorical device here, if this, then that. So let me just say this, the resurrection was God's master plan to combat and totally reverse Adam's disastrous rebellion against God. The resurrection of Jesus is key to God's promise to redeem his broken creation and to reclaim the earth as his good kingdom. Paul explains Jesus' resurrection as the first fruits what he's referencing is back in the law of Israel. The first fruits, the first batch of the harvest was to be brought to God, and it was dedicated or offered to him. And in this, it was, in this sense, the first fruit, it like separated or set apart the whole harvest. It implied or promised further fruit. The first fruits was as if it were a sample of the crop indicating both the nature and quality of the rest of the crop. And so Paul's using this as a metaphor to tell us about Christ's resurrection and our own resurrection. What he means is that Christ's resurrection was a foretaste of what is to come for all believers. It guarantees it, both in nature, a body, And in quality, a body that is more physical, more solid than our physical bodies, a body made to inhabit both heaven and earth. And so Paul, he argues this, you know, just as we were in Adam and now all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. And then he comes back again to this idea of first fruits to show us that this is not just a metaphor for how it will happen, but also tells us about the sequence, the timeline. He says, the order is Christ's resurrection, then those who belong to Christ. And this is after Christ's people have been resurrected, that death itself will be destroyed. The last enemy, and then the end comes. When Jesus has defeated every enemy, and finally he will hand over the kingdom to the Father and Everything will be in its right place. God will be all in all. Now, I talked about this first service as well, but I likened it to you know, like those Russian matryoshka dolls. You know how you got the big one, and then you got the little one, and you get the next one. It goes all the way down, right? It's almost like there is this ordering of things, but the end is the reordering, kind of putting everything back into its right place. So in the creation, all this stuff was dealt out, but in the recreation, God will gather it all up under himself. We know that the Son of God was sent into the world by the Father because of the love of God to redeem and rescue the world. He rules as the rightful king over the earth, and he must rule, we're told until his enemies are brought and made his footstool. But once that is complete, Christ, the son, will hand the kingdom over to the father that God might be all in all. See, in a sense, Christ will do what Adam failed to do. In Genesis, God uses kingdom language Adam and Eve are kings and queens meant to rule and reign over God's good creation and they're meant to spread God's kingdom over all of the earth. They're meant to hand over this stewardship to God as a gift back to God. But they failed to do that. They sought to make the world in their own image and after their own likeness. And now we see the results of sin, but Christ will hand over a purified kingdom to the Father, a complete, a whole kingdom in which all sin, all evil, every enemy, every ruler, even death itself has been eradicated. He will hand over this complete and purified kingdom to the Father that God might be all in all. And this is the right ordering of all things. I summed it up this way. In becoming human for our sakes and to be our mediator and savior, the Lord Jesus took upon himself a subjection to the Father. This is the incarnation. And this continues until he is seen to reign in majesty at his return. He is subordinate to the Father as the mediator, though he's not inferior to him, we know that. The Lord Jesus will hand over the kingdom to the Father that God might be all in all. You see, the resurrection of the dead is this key feature of God's plan to bring back everything in its rightful place and order so that God might be all in all. Now, we went with the Corinthians and their idea of if this, then that. Paul takes us in his direction, if this, then that, but he continues. He's got one more if this, then that, and that's where I wanna take us this morning. I said in the beginning that what we believe greatly affects how we live and what we practice. And the facts concerning Jesus' resurrection, our right doctrine and understanding about the end of all things are of huge importance. But they are not told us in scripture as cold hard facts from a textbook waiting to be dusted off once a year right around Easter to just remember. No, the Christian life is to be one continual celebration and observance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Ongoing, daily, again and again, we are to practice resurrection or observe resurrection. It's not just an event in history, it's a life to be lived that will go on from this world into God's new world. And we are invited by God to practice resurrection now in anticipation of the world that is to come. And this is what Paul is arguing in the end of this chapter, if this, then that. Paul says, in light of this truth, the assurance of the end the assurance of the right ordering of all things, the assurance of the resurrection of our bodies, the assurance of the defeat of evil powers and death itself that's filling up of heaven and earth with the glory of God. My dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for you know that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Paul says, go hard for the kingdom of God. Go all in, cash it all in, put all your chips in. I can't believe I'm using a gambling metaphor from the pulpit, for the kingdom of God, right? That's what he's saying. But this is what Jesus is saying actually in the parable of the pearl of great price, the treasure hidden in a field. Give everything to possess the kingdom of God. See, if resurrection is true and real, then the church should practice resurrection life now. Should live it out now. Well, what does that look like to practice resurrection? Well, I believe to the extent that God's future world is real to you, it's a living reality, it will change everything about how you live in the present. We've talked about this all along our teachings in 1 Corinthians. It's the proleptic vision. It's eschatological ethics. If the kingdom of God is a place where there is no lack, there's no want, then Christians should live generously now. If the kingdom of God is a place of peace and of righteousness, then we should be peacemakers now. We should be determined to live right by one another now. And in doing this, we put the kingdom of God on display. We're like these billboards saying coming attraction. The kingdom of God is breaking into the world. That is what eschatological ethics or the proleptic vision is all about, living out the kingdom of God in the here and now. So how do we do this? I think we can simply break it down into two categories. And I like to do it in the calculated and the carefree. How do we do this? It's very calculated, but it's also incredibly carefree. So first, the calculated. If Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, that means we should calculate all things in light of the final resurrection and the coming kingdoms. It means that everything we do in this life has eternal weight and merit to it everything. One theologian put it this way. He said, this life is like an internship for the kingdom of God. It's an internship. We're practicing, we're training, we're learning in order to rule and reign with Christ in the world to come. Everything we do in this life has eternal weight and merit to it. N.T. Wright in his book, Surprised by Hope, says, the point of the resurrection is that the present bodily life isn't valueless just because it will die. What you do with your body in the present matters because God has a great future in store for it. What you do in the present by painting or preaching, singing or sewing, praying or teaching, building hospitals or digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing, I'll say, prophetic poems, caring for the needy, loving your neighbor as yourself will last into God's future. These activities are not simply ways of making the present life a little less beastly, a little more bearable until the day when we leave it behind altogether, as the hymn so mistakenly puts it. They are part of what we may call building for God's kingdom, This is what Jesus calls us to do in the Sermon on the Mount, to build the kingdom until the king comes and makes all things new. See, part of the church's task consists in this, implementing that achievement of Jesus and anticipating the future kingdom by doing right, by practicing justice and bringing peace to the places and people of the world where it is absent. There are dark regions of the world where the kingdom of God, where it's light, where it's salt, is not known, seen, and felt. And the church's task is to take the light of the gospel, the presence of the kingdom to those places, and let it shine. Let it permeate as salt does. As I mentioned earlier, I see here this correlation to Jesus' parable of the treasure in a field, that that pearl of great price. The exhortation of those stories are to give everything you have for the working and building of the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and he will add all of these other things to you. He will take care of your worries, your anxieties, and your fears. To live our lives as though the kingdom were here now. That's the call, to begin to practice now the language and characteristics of faith, hope, and love in our everyday lives, because this is the language that they speak in the courts of heaven, and the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the call of the church. Again, N.T. Wright says, I'm surprised by hope. Every act of love, every deed done in Christ and by the Spirit, every true work of creativity, doing justice and making peace, healing families, resisting temptation. How many of us think about resisting temptation in light of our eschatology? Seeking and winning true freedom. This is an earthly event in a long history of things that implement Jesus' own resurrection and anticipate the final new creation and act as billboards of hope pointing back to the first resurrection and on to the second. To live, to practice resurrection is calculated. Everything we do For God, for his kingdom, everything we sacrifice, the sufferings that we endure, Paul says, cannot compare with the weight of glory that shall be revealed in us. So calculate all things, all obedience, all sacrifice by these promises of resurrection and new creation. And then there is also the carefree. Yes, it's calculated, but it's greater than that. It's also carefree. Listen to what Tim Keller says in his book, Jesus the King. He asks a series of questions that I think help us realize the everyday power and freedom that the resurrection of Jesus offers to our daily living. He says, why is it so hard to face suffering? Why is it so hard to face disability and disease? Why is it so hard to do the right thing even if you know it's going to cost, especially, excuse me, when you know it's going to cost you money, reputation, maybe even your life? Why is it so hard to face your death or the death of a loved one? It's so hard because we think and act as though this broken world is the only world we're ever going to have. And it's easy to feel as if this money is the only wealth we'll ever have. If I only have one life to live, he says, I better live it to the fullest. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. I better live it to the fullest by bringing ultimate satisfaction to myself. But if the resurrection is true, then this is not true. My only life, listen, nor is it my best life. But the best is yet to come. Man, what a promise. You know, there's this philosopher, a modern philosopher, his name's Luke Ferry, and he wrote a book called A Brief History of Thought. It's fascinating. Uh, he falls more into the philosophical thinking of Nietzsche, but as he surveys, you know, some of the major philosophies that have shaped the Western world, he believes that the Christian message of resurrection and new creation is the most compelling and beautiful philosophy there possibly is. He actually says, "I think it's too good to be true." Wow. And that is it. It is. It is. So it's that good. It's that good. It's like a fairy tale, you guys. It's this comedy. It's a tragedy. It's a fairy tale. It's the greatest story ever told that God has done the unthinkable to rescue and redeem these fallen, rebellious creatures to restore us to make us beautiful in his sight once again and to exalt us, to reign over the world to come. It's the greatest fairy tale ever told. It's a total comedy where Sarah, a 90-year-old woman, is pregnant, where the fools and the weak and the despised in scripture are exalted to the place of princes and kings, and the kings and rulers of this world are cast down and thrown out And it's a tragedy of all tragedies because we're worse off than we can possibly imagine. The God of glory had to come to earth to rescue and redeem us. It's tragedy, it's comedy, it's fairy tale. And like Tolkien said to C.S. Lewis, it's the myth that is true. It's the myth that is true. Now, not only is the best to come But Peter tells us it's imperishable, it's undefiled, it's unfading and reserved in heaven for us, protected by God. So for those of us, I mean, this might be like, this is an amazing vision, but will I endure? Can I make it? Oh, there is nothing in all of creation that can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Eye is not seen, ear is not heard, no, is it entered in the heart of man, the thing that God has prepared for those who love him. Yes, this truth is for us. This hope is for us. Because of this, then, we are free. We're free to love people liberally. We're free to show kindness to all. We're free to forgive We're free to think the best of people. We're free to loosen our control and worry. We're free to generosity, to give more away because this is not my only wealth. There are riches stored for me in glory. We're free to take ourselves less seriously. We're free to spend more time with people investing in their lives, and less time on securing our own little kingdoms. We're free to bless the people who hate and curse us. And might I even suggest, free to read another story to our children. Free to spend more time playing with them and just simply experiencing joy together. We are free to throw a great party or build and plant a beautiful garden. Now, here's the deal. People say stuff like this all the time who have no belief in God or the resurrection, who have no hope in a restored heaven and earth. You can go to Hallmark or wherever. You can find these pithy statements that have no depth, power, or meaning behind them. But how much more can Christians live carefree? If the resurrection is true, if Jesus rose from the dead, your life should truly be carefree. Not in a flippant way, but because of such a great certainty and underlying hope about the future and the kingdom of God. You're free. You're free. If you and I know that this is not the only world, the only body, the only life we're ever going to have that one day will have a perfect, more real, more concrete body, life, then who ultimately cares what people do to you and what happens in this life? And because of the resurrection, we can be free from these ultimate anxieties in this life. We can be brave and we can take risks for the kingdom of God. We can sacrifice greatly. We can face the worst thing with joy and hope because it doesn't end there. Death and chaos and destruction do not have the final word over our lives, but Jesus, the resurrected, grave-conquering king, does. He has the final word, and he says, behold, I make all things new. This is the truth of the resurrection. And so because of this hope, we can give our bodies in obedience to God. We can serve one another. We can have that mind of Christ to humble ourselves. We can die to ourselves, our will, our self-preservation for the sake of others and receive a great reward. Well done, good and faithful servant in the kingdom of God. Now, only in the gospel of Jesus Christ, as Luke Ferry says, can you find such enormous hope. Only the gospel offers this. Only the resurrection promises us not just new minds and hearts, not just disembodied souls, but new bodies and a new creation. Only the resurrection promises that the best is yet to come. So I wanna do this as we close this morning. I would love for you just to just receive this receive God's vision of the world to come and just allow it to kind of break over your minds, your hearts, to form your imagination, to reshape your desires, your values. And so if you would, would you close your eyes as I read these two passages of scripture? And church, hear the word of the Lord. These are his great and precious promises. These are the anchor of hope that we have for our souls. In Isaiah 25, six through nine, on this mountain, the Lord of heavenly armies will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well refined, a sumptuous feast. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For Yahweh has spoken and it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is Yahweh, we have waited for him Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And John writes, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Church, if you believe the resurrection is true, if you believe that Jesus has died to save you, to redirect your eternal trajectory toward God, if you believe that God has accepted you by, for Jesus' sake, by a sheer act of grace, then you are part of the kingdom of God. And that means a guaranteed new heavens and new earth. That means a healed, physical, material creation, absolute wholeness and well-being, physically, spiritually, socially, and economically. If you believe this, then practice resurrection practice it. Put the kingdom of God on display. Look for the ways in which God is calling you to do this. You know, I was teaching here on Wednesday night, doing an overview of the book of Daniel. And we were talking about how our culture has been telling stories about the meaning of the world, what to value, who to be where to invest, but through this pandemic and for many years now, I believe that this secular narrative, the secular redemptive narrative is failing. It's failing. It might give you infinite freedom, but it gives you little meaning and purpose for your life. Listen to the biblical vision. Listen to what God has in store for people. And church, church, Go to the places where the people are in order to share with them the biblical vision. First, listen. Listen to the hopes and longings. Listen to the heart cry. Listen to the desires of your neighbors, of your coworkers, of the people. Listen in order to serve them, in order to care for them. And then when their idol fails, when the ideal crumbles, in order to point to a greater vision of hope a greater vision of peace, a greater vision for meaning and purposefulness through the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. This is the call of the church. Would the Lord give us vision, grace, energy to step into those opportunities? Amen? Amen.